Thank you for listening to Sermon Audio from Hill City Church in Springfield, Missouri. We are a community of believers who exist to glorify God by making disciples who bring gospel restoration to our city and world. For more information about Hill City or to support our ministry, you can find us online at hillcitysgf.org. Awesome. Amen. Well, good morning. So like Brad was saying, um, we've been in a series through the book of Luke. And if you remember all the way back to the beginning, week one, we talked about the reason or the purpose behind Luke writing this letter. Um, And he was writing to a man named Theophilus. And in chapter one, it says that he wrote to Theophilus so that he could have certainty in what he had been taught. And so I I was thinking about that this week, like why would would he need this certainty? Uh, And I think one of the reasons is because Jesus came in this really unexpected way. Uh, We've been talking about it the last few weeks, that Jesus established this upside-down kingdom. It was something that that was maybe not not expected, not how people thought he would come. And so Luke needs to provide this certainty. So how does he do it? He goes, he finds eyewitnesses, and he starts to build this account. Um, He is on a quest for truth. And so uh, two or three years ago, I um, got hooked on a couple of true crime series. I don't know if you guys are familiar with either of these, but the first one was a podcast, and it's called Serial. I don't know if anyone has listened to this podcast, but it is riveting. So um, it's about the case of this man. His name is Adnan Syed, okay? And uh, he was actually convicted of murder as a teenager, And then 15 years later, he's still in prison, and he's saying, I didn't do it. I'm innocent. And so people look back into his case, and they're like, man, actually, there are a lot of holes here. You know, did did he do it? Did he not do it? What really happened? And there's kind of this quest for truth. And then after that, you know, uh, a few weeks go by, and I've got this true crime itch. I've got a scratch. And so uh, there's this Netflix series that comes out. Maybe you guys have heard of this. It's called Making a Murderer. And so it's this uh, documentary series uh, that follows the case of a man named Stephen Avery. So Stephen Avery, also convicted of murder, but here he is in prison years later saying, you know, I didn't do it. I'm innocent. And so again, people start to look into this case, and they're like, man, there are a lot of holes here. We don't don't really know the truth. So so let's look back into this. Let's let's, uh, look back into this case and try to figure out what really happened. So over the last week, I've been thinking about um, kind of these two cases, and I realized they have some of the same elements of the book of Luke. So first of all, again, there's this quest for truth. They want to figure out, you know, what really happened. And then another thing hit me. You know, along the way, in both of these cases, we meet a lot of different people. You know, they go and interview eyewitnesses. They interview a lot of people close to the case. And everyone has their own backstory. They all have their own baggage, their own stuff that they kind of bring to the case. And because of that, they all see things just a little bit differently. They all bring their own unique perspective to the case because they're all seeing things through the lens of a different backstory or different baggage, different stuff. And in the book of Luke, we actually see the same thing happen. Again, he's on this mission to get to the truth. He's on this quest for truth, 
And along the way, he meets eyewitnesses, and everyone has their own baggage, their own stuff, their own backstory that affects the way they see things. So they all see things a little bit differently, and they all approach Jesus a little bit differently. And so today, we're going to be in Luke chapter 5, and we are going to see two different groups of people. Um, and what, what happens is it, it's very interesting because they are both hearing the same reports about Jesus. Jesus is out healing, he's out preaching, he's out teaching, and they're both hearing the same information. They both get the same information about Jesus, but they respond to it very differently. And so just to catch us up, we left off last week with Jesus healing a man with leprosy. And so after this healing, word gets out about Jesus, and large crowds are starting to gather to hear him teach. And so we'll pick it up in verse 17 of Luke 5 today. So it says, on one of those days, so again, this is one of those days that Jesus is teaching, and a large crowd has gathered. At this time, Jesus is on the Sea of Galilee, likely in a town called Capernaum, which is on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And as he's teaching, he's not in a church or a synagogue. Uh, it's actually in a home. And it's likely a house where Jesus was staying at the time. So a large crowd gathers to hear Jesus teach. It says, on one of those days, as he was teaching, as Jesus was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. So this is the first group we're going to meet today. This is the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And this is actually the first mention of the Pharisees uh, in the book of Luke. And so the Pharisees have their own backstory. They're going to bring their own baggage into this meeting with Jesus. And so today I'd like to take a minute and get to know them a little bit, kind of see what is their backstory. So um, growing up, I grew up in the church, and part of where, well, where I live, part of growing up in the church was going to Easter productions. I don't know if anyone has seen a good Easter production before, but in, the, in every Easter production, it doesn't take long to learn that the Pharisees are the bad guys, okay? I don't know if you guys have seen this. The Pharisees, they're all, they always look, they look like they're mad about something. They're, they're always just kind of angry. They've got this upset look on their face, and they're saying things like, blasphemy, or crucify him. You know, it's, it's kind of this look right here. You know, there's anger, there's finger pointing, you know, they're, I've, I've kind of always seen them as the bad guys. And while I think there's a lot of truth to that, I want to dig a little bit deeper today and see, you know, who, who are the Pharisees really? Like, wh what is this group all about? So first off, the word Pharisee, it literally means separated ones. So the Pharisees have separated themselves away from other people. So one group that they separate themselves is non-Jewish people. So they separate themselves from the Gentiles. But then they even take it a step further than that. The Pharisees also separate themselves from kind of non-religious Jews, Jews that, that don't practice the law or don't hold the law in quite as high esteem as they do. So the Pharisees are the separated ones, and maybe a better way of thinking about it is, is kind of the elevated ones. They see themselves as kind of above everyone else, um, better than everybody else. And so how, how did they get that way, or why do they see themselves that way? It's because they are devoted to the law. 
they hold the law in high esteem. To be a Pharisee, you have to know the law inside and out. So, so what is the law? The law is the first five books of the Old Testament, or the Torah. And again, to be a Pharisee, you have to know your stuff. You have to know the Torah. And so that sounds great. You know, it's good to know the law. We have a few uh, lawyers here in the room. So it's good to know the law, but the problem with the Pharisees is they took that knowledge and they applied it to everybody else. And they didn't apply it to themselves. So what happened is everywhere they look, Pharisees see people that are breaking the law. And they say, guilty, 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 guilty. But they never look at themselves. Instead, they separate themselves and they say, you know what, we're above that. Uh, And the tragedy of it all, the the tragedy for the Pharisees is the more they looked for sin in others, the more they became blind to their own sin. And I think that this is still true today. You know, I see this in myself. The more that I'm judging other people, the more I see the sin in other people, the more I start to neglect my own heart. And I start to forget this verse. In Romans 3.10, it says, there is no one righteous, not even one. And I think somewhere along the way, the Pharisees lost sight of this. And instead of seeing their own sin and looking for a savior, being desperate for a savior, they just saw the sin of others and they judged them. So a little bit more about the Pharisees. Jesus describes the Pharisees in Matthew uh, chapter 23. So we'll look at Matthew 23 and verses uh, 3 through 5 to start with. Um, Jesus says, They preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. And then after this, Jesus says five separate times that the Pharisees are blind. He says they are blind guides, blind fools, blind men, blind guides again. And then in verse 26, blind Pharisee. So he, he really emphasizes this blindness, and we'll see it here. We're going to look at verses 25 through 27 uh, in Matthew 23. Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, First, clean the inside of the cup and plate that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So these experts, these experts in the law, are ultimately described by Jesus as lawless. So this is the backstory, or this is the baggage, the stuff that the Pharisees bring to the table when they are getting ready to encounter Jesus. They are experts in the law, separated from others, above others, and they are blind to their own lawlessness, their own hypocrisy, their own sin. They know the law, and they hold others to the law, but they don't live it out themselves. 
And so we'll get back into the story here. The Pharisees and teachers of the law are coming from all around to hear Jesus speak. And I think, you know, they've heard these reports and they want to see, you know, who, who is this guy? What is he all about? Don't, don't people know we are the experts? I think there's a part of them that wants to maybe discredit Jesus and maybe shut him down. Um, but, but let's imagine these Pharisees as they're coming to this meeting. Again, they, they are all about the outside. So they are probably robed up, dressed, dressed up, ready to go, looking good, feeling good, and they are like going into battle. So I kind of imagine the Pharisees thinking of themselves like this. We are ready, man. We are like the New England Patriots. We are awesome, and we are going to show Jesus what we got. But unfortunately, I think the reality of the situation is a little bit closer to this, the little giants. The Pharisees don't see it. They're blind, but in reality, they're just as messed up as everybody else. They just don't see it. They're blind to it. And so this is what the Pharisees bring to the table. That's the first group that we're going to see, the Pharisees. And then we get a little glimpse of Jesus at the end of verse 17. It says, And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And now this, this is a short verse, but I, but I think it's huge. I think it's really important. In contrast to the Pharisees, again, we just talked about the Pharisees, if they had a verse to kind of summarize their mission, meeting up with Jesus, it might sound something like this. You know, in their own power, they came to condemn. But Jesus, you know, he's, he's different. He comes with true power, and he comes with a different mission. His mission is to heal. And the word for healing here is kind of cool. It's a, it's a Greek word, and it's uh, yastai. Um, and its interpretation is a little bit tricky because it does mean healing, like, a, like physical healing, but it also is a little bit deeper than that. Um, it conveys more of like a restoration or kind of a return to wholeness or completeness. That is yastai. It's, it's kind of similar to the Hebrew word shalom. If you're familiar with the Hebrew word shalom, it's often interpreted peace, but it also conveys like harmony. And yastai is kind of like that too. It's this harmony, wholeness, completeness, life, flourishing. Um, it's this sense that everything is being made right. And that is what Jesus has come to do. His mission is yastai. Jesus lays out his mission in John 3.17. John 3.17 says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him, that the world might be healed, restored, yastai. So that is the mission of Jesus. And then we meet this second group. We'll pick, we'll pick it up in verse 18. It says, And behold... Some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. So this is just really cool. You know, the, these men, these four friends, carry their friend to Jesus for him to be healed. And so again, this, this is a very different group than that first group 
we talked about. They have a very different reaction to Jesus. It's not let's go judge, it's let's go get healed. And so why is that? Again, I think we've got to look at their backstory a little bit. Let's see what we can find out about this group. So first of all, we know that there's a paralyzed man. And so to be paralyzed, or really to be sick in any way during this time, was, was considered to be a sign of sin. It was kind of a label or a stigma. We talked last week about leprosy and how the leper would have to come in and say, unclean, unclean. And so this is a little bit different from that since this is not something contagious. He wouldn't have to be isolated, but it still is a label. There's a thought that this, this man must have sinned. There must be some deep sin in his life if he is pal- paralyzed. So he has this label, he's separated, and he is actually less than, considered less than everyone else. To help us understand this a little bit, we can look uh, at John 9. We, we see another account uh, in John chapter 9. Um, so Jesus is with his disciples, and it says, as he passed by, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? this man or his parents, that he was born blind. And so you can see there's this confusion. He's blind, well, someone must have sinned because that's, that's what sickness or that's what blindness or paralysis, that's what it is, it's sin. And Jesus answered, he says, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So this man, this paralyzed man, he's on the outside. He is separated But he's not separated by choice like the Pharisees. He's pushed to the outside, forced to the outside. And he's not just different or separated, he's he's considered less than. And so what makes him less than? Let's look at this a little bit closer. What what does it mean to be paralyzed? What is paralysis? I I think we hear paralysis or paralyzed and we think, you know, can't move. It's not being able to move. But It's a little bit more than that. Um, At its core, paralysis is a disconnection. You know, usually when someone is paralyzed, it's maybe a brain injury or a spinal cord injury. And so what happens is the message is not getting from the brain to the muscles. And when that happens, the muscles can't move, and when they can't move, they waste away, they atrophy. And so it, it looks something like this. This is a man who's paralyzed from the waist down. And you can see his arms are getting the message. There's muscle there. There's no wasting away. There's muscle. But if you look at his legs, the legs are not getting the message. There's a disconnect. And so there's no muscle. And there's atrophy. And there's a wasting away. Because if you can't use your muscles, you lose your muscles. And again, there's atrophy. And there's nothing you can do to make your muscles work. You can't wake them up. And so here's this man in our story, you know, likely paralyzed for a long time, atrophy has set in, and his atrophy is a constant reminder that he is less than. But then he hears about this man named Jesus, who's going around and he's healing people. And again, his response is completely different than the Pharisees. He is fully aware of his weakness. He sees it. He wakes up to it every day. And in Jesus, he sees hope. He sees the hope of healing. 
So he gets excited. And he and his friends, they hatch a plan. They say, you know what? We're going to go. We're going to find this guy, Jesus, who's healing people. And we're going to get you, and we're going to get you right in front of him. So they go and they find him. Hey, he's in this house. Let's go in that house. Oh, but then there's crowds blocking the way. We don't care about a crowd. Let's go. We're going up on the roof. I don't know how we're going to get you in front of him, but we're going up on the roof and we're going to figure it out. So they get up on the roof and it's like, oh man, what are we going to do? Well, let's dig a hole. We're going to dig a hole in this roof because we got to get you to Jesus. So they dig a hole and they lower him through the roof to see Jesus because they believe this is finally his hope, finally his chance to be healed, Yastai. So then we'll, we'll pick it up in verse 20. It says, and when he saw their faith. Again, a short verse, but a really big verse. Jesus is not like the Pharisees. He's not blind. Jesus sees. And what does he see? He sees their faith. He doesn't look at the outside of the cup like the Pharisees. He sees through all that. He sees through, you know, works. He doesn't evaluate performance. He sees through to their heart. And what does he see? He sees faith. And so what does Jesus do in response to their faith? He said, man, your sins are forgiven you. So now this might be a little bit unexpected for this group of friends and the paralyzed man. They're like, we did it. We got before Jesus. And his, his, his sins are forgiven him? Like, he's paralyzed. They might have been looking for a little bit different type of healing. Like, can, can you maybe make him walk? But Jesus, he wants to do something bigger than that. He wants to bring yastai, this deeper healing, this healing from the inside out, this healing for the soul. And it's interesting to note, to think about, you know, paralysis, like we talked about, it's not really a, uh, a consequence of sin like people believed during that time, but it is a picture of sin. So this man, his physical condition is the result of a disconnect, and it leaves him paralyzed. And as a result, he's wasting away, and there's nothing he can do about it. Our sin separates us from God. There's a disconnect. And what does that disconnect do? It makes us waste away. When there's no connection, we waste away. That sin atrophies our joy. It atrophies our love. It atrophies our peace. And there is nothing we can do about it. Outside of Jesus and his power to heal, to restore, yastai. So Jesus says this statement, man, your sins are forgiven you. So if that's going to perk up any ears, it's going to be the Pharisees over here. Whoa, 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 whoa. What, did, what did he say? Your sins are forgiven you? Um, so, so let's see their reaction. In verse 21, it says, And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? So the Pharisees are offended. You know, who does this guy think he is? And they say, you know, who can forgive sins but God alone? But what are they really saying? What, what's underneath that? 
I think what they're really saying is, who can judge this man but us, the experts? We say if people are guilty or not guilty. That's our job. And most of the time, you know, we're going to say guilty. But again, the irony is, here is God in the flesh right before their eyes, and they don't see it. They are blind to who Jesus is. And so Jesus, in verse 22, it says, when Jesus perceived their thoughts. Again, Jesus sees. He sees through it all, and he sees right into their heart. He sees what they're thinking, and he sees a lack of faith. And so how does Jesus respond to the Pharisees? Is Jesus offended? Does he shame them for their lack of faith? Or, or does he retreat? Does he say, you know what? They're never going to get it. Why even waste my time? You know, Je Jesus doesn't do either of those things. Jesus engages. He pursues the Pharisees. Because he came with the power to heal. So he answered them. He said, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, rise and walk? So what is Jesus doing here? I, I love it. Jesus, it, it says he answered them, but how does he answer them? He answers them with a question. And he does that all the time. He always answers with a question. Why? Because he is after the heart. He sees the heart, and he addresses the heart. And that is what he's doing with the Pharisees. Because he knows they're blind, and he has to help them see. So how does he do it? He says, which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven you? Again, kind of addressing the inside of the cup, what the Pharisees don't pay a lot of attention to, the unseen, the soul, or to say rise and walk. So here, you know, he's addressing the scene. The Pharisees can kind of wrap their mind around this. We understand healing for the body. We understand the outside of the cup. And then Jesus says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. That you may finally see that you may finally get it, this deeper reality. I want you to understand this deeper healing, this deeper yastai, that you may know that I have authority on earth to forgive sins. And then what does he do? He's going to show them a physical healing, something that they can understand. He said to the man that was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them, picked up what he had been lying on, and went home glorifying God. So Jesus heals the man. He heals his soul, and he heals his body. So I think it's interesting to think about the different reasons Jesus healed this man. First, I mean, he came with the power to heal. That was his mission. He, he, he comes to heal and then we saw earlier that he saw their faith. And so healing, in, in another way, is a response to faith. But then there's this third reason that I think is really interesting. He heals because he wants the Pharisees to see and understand, I come to heal. 
It's like he's saying to the Pharisees, I love you so much. I'm going to show you who I am in a way that you will understand. And then notice the response to the paralyzed man. What, what, how does the paralyzed man respond? He goes home glorifying God. He experiences this deeper healing and his life is different. There's a connection now where there wasn't one before and it brings life and he celebrates. And so the Pharisees, they see all this, they see this healing and let's see how they now respond in verse 26. It says, And amazement seized them all and they glorified God, and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. The blind have seen extraordinary things today. The Pharisees finally get it. They finally see. They experience this healing, this deeper healing, and their lives are different. These separated ones experience this deep connection and they glorify God. So, three observations on this story, um, and then we'll close. So, the first observation is, when Jesus heals, he levels the playing field with truth and grace. So, what do I mean by that? So, as we started this account, we saw two very different groups on completely opposite ends of the spectrum. We saw a group up here, above, separated, and we saw a group down here, less than. But at the end of the story, both groups experience healing, and now at the end, they are both doing the exact same thing. They're glorifying God. And how did we get there? We got there with truth and grace. So first, to the paralyzed man, the outcast, the less than, what did Jesus say? So here he is in his sin, thinking he is less than, that he is down here, and Jesus says, no, listen, listen, no one is righteous, not even one. Your sin is no different than anyone else's. No one is righteous, not even one. But then he doesn't leave it there. He then follows it up with grace. Listen, yes, you sin. No one is righteous, not even one, but listen, I did not come to condemn. I came to save. I'm here to heal. I am here to restore. And then over here to the Pharisees, what does he do? Again, it's, it's the same thing. It's truth and grace. They see themselves as above. We're better than. We're the separated ones. And what does he say? No, 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 listen. No one is righteous. Not even one your sin is no different than anyone else's. And they're like, no, 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 no. But listen, I didn't come to condemn you. I came to save you. I came to heal you. I want to make you whole again and show you what real life is all about. So again, he brings everyone to the same level with truth and grace, with this healing. A second observation, the healing of Jesus, this healing power of Jesus is not good advice. 
It is good news. So Jesus came with the power to heal. He knows there is no way that we can experience healing on our own apart from him. We can't do it. So he didn't come to the paralyzed man with advice, with a method to follow. He didn't say, hey, here's the five things you got to do. Do these five things, and then you will be able to walk again. And he didn't come to the Pharisees and say, yes, you are blind. Do these three things, and then you will break through your blindness. It's not a method to follow. It is a message to believe. When Jesus saw the man, the paralyzed man, he saw his faith, and he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. I have good news for you. And when he saw the Pharisees and their blindness, he said, I have good news for you. Another way we see this illustrated in the story is when you get good advice, you rarely celebrate. Like, oh, those are five things I got to do? Yes. <laughs> but when you get good news, what, we won the victory? Yes. You, you celebrate. And what do these two groups do? What are they doing at the end of this story? Both of them, they get good news and they celebrate. They are glorifying God. So again, the healing of Jesus, it's not good advice, it's good news. And then a third thing, the way of healing is through connection. And so in this account, again, this good news, this healing love of Jesus, it's kind of refreshing. You know, this is something we don't see all the time. You know, Jesus isn't looking to gain anything from either of these groups. He's not in competition with either of these groups. He just wants to heal. He just wants to connect with people in need, and he wants to meet that need. That's all he wants to do. Uh, Henry Nouwen uh, explains this healing, connecting love of God, um, and he says it way better than I could, so I'm going to tell you how he says it. Uh, he said, compassion in its fullest sense can be attributed only to God. It is the central message of the gospel that God, who is in no way in competition with us, is the only way, who, is the only one who can be truly compassionate. It is because Jesus was not dependent on people, but only on God and this connection to God that he could be so close, so connected to people, so concerned, so comforting, so healing so caring. He related to people for their own sake, not his own. His question was not, how can I receive satisfaction, but how can I respond to your real need? Jesus brought this completely self-forgetful kind of love, a love that always is about the other, always bringing healing. So what could, what could this look like today? If we want to bring this healing, what could it look like? So um, we recently posted this video to our website. It's in this But God series. I don't know if you guys have seen it. Um, and I, it's like an eight-minute video, so I won't be able to do it justice today. So if you haven't seen it, please go see it. It's way better than whatever I'm about to, to the way I can summarize it. But anyway, watch, watch the video. Um, in the video, Michael and Caitlin Wilson uh, share their story. Um, and it's really their experience 
with, uh, with foster care. And I think it is one way that this healing connecting uh, can kind of play out. I think it's actually a really good picture of how it can play out. So a little bit of their story. Um, about two years ago, Michael and Caitlin um, became foster parents. They welcomed these two boys into their home, uh, a five-week-old and 11-month-old. Uh, and over the course of the next year, they really grew to love these two boys. I mean, they're, they're basically their mom and their dad, and so they love these boys. Uh, and at the same time, over the course of that year, Caitlin actually got to know their birth mom. And Caitlin shares a little bit about this experience in the video, um, but she kind of thought going into foster parenting that there would be maybe even just a little bit of competition you know, between a foster mom and a birth mom, and that it might be hard, you know, after loving these boys and these boys seeing her as their mom, it might be hard to see them love someone else as their mom. And she thought there might be jealousy if, if she saw her, these boys loving their birth mom. But what she says in the video is, through the grace of God, that never happened. There, there was just this healing that took place. And in a way she couldn't really explain, she loved their mom. There was no competition, there was no jealousy, she loved their mom. And, was, and as a result of that, there wasn't only healing in her, but that healing spilled out into this relationship with this family. And now, we fast forward, those two boys are now back with their birth mom, but there's still a relationship there. There's still a connection with those boys. They still are able to have a relationship. And I think a big part of that is that healing that took place. And so, how do we get there? How do we experience this healing? Um, again, we just talked about the way of healing is through connection. Um, and I think it's really cool the way C.S. Lewis describes it. He says, if you want to get warm, you've got to stand by the fire. If you want to get wet, you must get in the water. If you want joy, power, peace, eternal life, you must get close or even into the thing that has them. Again, the way of healing, the way of life is connection. And so Jesus describes this um, in John. In John 15, 5, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, whoever stays connected, he it is that bears much fruit, flourishing, healing, life. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And so remember, you know, paralysis, sin, at their core are this disconnection. And what Jesus says is apart from me, you know, when there's a disconnection, you're going to waste away. You can't do anything. But the good news is, abide in me, connect with me, and you will bear fruit. There will be life. There will be healing. This yastai, this wholeness. And so, as we get ready to close, I want to look back. So we have this whole account, this awesome account, of Jesus bringing healing to these two groups. Let's look at what Jesus was doing before this account takes place. And we see that in uh, verse 16. It says, But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. 
So Jesus knew the way of healing is connection. So Jesus had this rhythm. He connects with the Father, then he connects with people. He connects with the Father, he connects with people. And he calls us to do the same thing. So wherever you are today, Jesus invites you to come, abide, connect. And he will bring the healing, the life, the flourishing. And then he will send us out to do the same for others, to bring that healing, to bring that life to other people. And the cool thing about it is we will all do it in a different way because we all have this different backstory. We all have something different that we bring to the table. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you so much for this healing work, this healing power of Jesus. Thank you that while we were dead in our sin, disconnected, separated from you, you sent your son, not to condemn us, but to save us and to restore us to you. God, help us to abide in you. Help us to connect with you and experience the life and the flourishing that is there. And as we do that, help us to help Help us to share that life and that flourishing with other people. Amen.